Well, good morning, church. Good to see everybody this morning. If you're in the room this morning, let me hear you. Listen, I just want to say before we get into anything, how exciting it was this morning to have Sunday schools full of people and to have this room full of people. It's awesome. Listen, that, that is something we're celebrating. I'm so thankful for this church and how patient we have been and how uh, dedicated we have been to our community and to the folks who are part of this church. We've worked with one another. We've loved one another. I'm so thankful for where we are today. And folks in the balcony, look, they had to sit up there because there's two people in here. That's good. So um, this morning, my name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Mount Horeb, and it's a joy. It's an honor to be in the traditional room and spend time with you this morning as we open God's word together. My prayer today is that God would teach us something new, that he would change us, transform us in some kind of way. Uh, we are starting a brand new series today that I'm really excited about. Um, I was really excited. But I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a little bit. But uh, I'm, I'm excited about this series and what we're going to learn over the next five weeks. The series is called Mark My Words. Mark My Words. And what we're going to be looking at is in our culture, in our world, we navigate our world and our culture through language. The things we say to one another, the way we communicate to one another is very, very important. In our culture, we oftentimes use idioms, and idioms, if you don't know, are these phrases that we use oftentimes where the words themselves within the phrase may not fully give you the entire meaning behind what's being said. To really understand what's being said, you have to know the context. You have to know where it came from, what helped form it, to really understand the weight of what's being said in these different uh, forms and fashions, these different phrases and sayings. So let me give you a few examples of some of these idioms that exist within our culture. Probably some of these you have said yourself. Here's the first one. Oftentimes in our culture, we say things like this. We just have to bite the bullet. Anybody ever said that before? We just got to bite the bullet. And what we mean in our culture when we say we have to bite the bullet, what we mean is this. We have to accept something difficult or unpleasant. I don't really want to do this, but I got to bite the bullet. I don't really want to, you know, take my kids to, uh, to Walmart this morning, but I got to bite the bullet. Whatever it might be. I mean, all the things that we don't want to do, but we got to do, we have to bite the bullet. Now, to understand the weight behind this phrase that we use oftentimes in our culture, you got to understand where it comes from. And this word, bite the bullet, actually finds its origins a long time ago when surgeons would be particularly on the battlefield having to do some kind of surgery. And if there wasn't enough anesthesia, what they'd have to do is give a bullet to the patient and say, here's a bullet, bite down, just endure the pain, we got to do this anyway. So now in our culture we say we got to bite the bullet. Maybe we don't mean exactly that, but it gives a little bit of context to what we're trying to say. Secondly, Bury the hatchet. Bury the hatchet. If we found ourselves in conflict with somebody before, maybe you've you've used this phrase. It's just time for us to bury the hatchet. And the context behind this particular phrase, what we're saying in our culture is we have to stop the conflict and and choose peace. But what this comes from, it actually dates back in North America when the Puritans and the Native Americans were at war with one another. When they decided to negotiate peace, the Native Americans would come and they'd actually bury their hatchets, knives, clubs, and tomahawks in the dirt so they were inaccessible as a way of saying, we are choosing peace. We have to bury the hatchet. Third, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You've probably said this before, right? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And to be honest with you, I didn't know where this came from. I didn't know. I said it all the time, but I had no idea the background information behind it. This one's interesting. So the background behind uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, to really understand it, in our culture when we say this, what we're saying is don't get rid of valuable things along with the unnecessary things. Though you've got to throw something unnecessary out, don't get rid of valuable things along with it. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. In the 1500s, people didn't bathe as often as we bathe now. So bathing was a big deal. So they would actually save the water throughout the entire family. 
So first you'd have the, the father who would bathe, then the mother, then the children. Eventually if there was babies, the babies would bathe last. As you can imagine, the water would not be as clear at the very end as it was at the very beginning. So mothers had to be very careful when they would throw out the bathwater at the very end. They didn't throw the baby out as well and forget the baby was in there. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Last one. I've said this one all the time. Put a sock in it. If you're a parent or a grandparent here this morning, you've probably used this phrase before. Put a sock in it. Now, again, this one's interesting. In our culture, when we say this, what we mean is, listen, stop talking. Quiet down. Put a sock in it. Sometimes it's nicer than other times when we say it. But the origin of this actually comes in the 19th century when people had gramophones or record players and be playing music. I didn't realize that there's no volume control on that. So in order to make it quieter, you had to take a woolen sock and stuff it inside of the horn to be able to make it quieter. So there you go. Stuff a sock in it. Put a sock in it. Be quiet. Now these different phrases we use all the time within our culture have a lot of loaded meaning to them. A lot of background, a lot of origin that helps us understand what we're actually trying to say because we navigate our world with language. And here's the thing, our words matter. What we say matters. And I would imagine that over this past year, unlike ever before, we've seen that our words hold weight. We must be careful to recognize what we're actually saying, what we're trying to say. Jesus, you may not understand, may not know this, but a lot of the things that Jesus says in the New Testament are actually phrases that we use in our culture today all the time. Some people who had never acknowledged Jesus are using phrases that he actually coined. Before we ever said it, he said it. So for the next five weeks, what we're going to look at is some different sayings that Jesus said that became phrases in our culture that we use all the time that if we go back and look in Scripture, might give us a little bit more weight, understanding, because of the origins that we find uh, in the Scriptures. So we're going to look today in Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bible with you, feel free to turn there in Matthew chapter 7. If you get your phones, you can go there as well, only for the Bible, of course. Chapter 7 in Matthew. We are going to be looking where Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon of all time. Jesus is wrapping up this particular sermon. At the very end, what he does is he takes a bit of time to give some warnings, some really stark warnings and some caution to those who are listening. Now, immediately preceding this passage that we're going to look at today is Jesus having a conversation with his listeners, and he's talking about these two gates. So he's saying, listen, there's two different gates that I want you to be aware of. One gate is very, very narrow, and the other gate is very, very wide. One leads to a road that is very, very narrow, and one leads to a road that is really, really wide. Uh, my, my family grew up, in, was, I was in Kentucky when I grew up with my family in about middle school, and I lived in this really great neighborhood called Talbot. And Talbot was full of kids my age. I mean, just everywhere. Every house had a kid like my age. Uh, I lived in a college town. Um, my dad was in school there. And so most families who were there were either working at the college or in college themselves. So I had a lot of kids kind of all in the same age range. And me and some of my best friends, we would traverse some, from one side of the neighborhood all the way to the other every single day. And after school, we'd put our book bags down and we would run across this place and that place. We would cross yards, probably shouldn't have. Fences were put up on our behalf. I just want to confess that. And we would go from yard to yard all over the place. And one day, my best friend and I, we were going across Talbot, and we came across this one backyard, and we saw in the very back of the backyard, right at the fence line, uh, there was this uh, woods right behind there, but right at the fence line was this little gate. We'd never seen it before. And there was like weeds growing up all around it, tree limbs kind of coming over, and very clearly no one had gone through this gate in a very, very long time. It was not highly used. So we thought we should use it. So we walked back there as middle school boys, and we're trying to check out what's going on in this gate. We didn't have to work really hard, but we opened the gate up. We thought, well, it's open. We might as well go in. And so we did. And inside of this gate was probably a half acre fenced in area that was an old quarry. About 15 feet down from the, from the dirt was water right there. And we couldn't believe it. 
And clearly nobody had been here for a very, very long time. We had probably discovered it. Nobody probably even knew it was here. We walk in and we spent so much time coming back to this quarry over and over again through this really small, narrow gate. We're the only people going. We'd bring our fishing poles. We'd fish for a while. We'd hang out. And I'm sure it was illegal, but we were doing it all the time. It was a great memory of mine. But the gate was a gate that was not highly used. Nobody knew about it. Nobody went through it except for us because we found it. In this story that Jesus is telling, in chapter 7, as he launches into this next story, he's referring back to something that is so important for the context of this phrase that we're going to look at today. Because Jesus is talking about these two different gates and these two different roads. He says, one is narrow and one is wide. Now, oftentimes when we talk about this, we think in our heads of a really narrow gate and a really wide gate. Within the ancient Near East, what they're trying to say here is not necessarily the, the size of the road or the gate. It has more to do with the kind of traffic that goes through it. Does that make sense? It's not about the size, it's about the traffic. How many people come there? One is narrow, one is wide. And Jesus says the narrow road, the narrow gate leads to, do you remember? Life. Life. Life to the full. It's a common theme within the scriptures. Jesus is very concerned about everyone who listens experiencing the full life of God. He says it's through the narrow gate. It's down a narrow road. Not many people go there, but it leads to life. He says there's another gate, another road. It's much wider, and it's traversed by all kinds of people. But he says the problem is this leads to destruction. Destruction. So Jesus is talking in chapter 7 that we're going to look at today, all in, in context of this particular understanding. Jesus is very concerned that everyone who listens to him finds the narrow gate and is not led astray to another gate. One other thing to understand as we get into this chapter 7 is that Jesus is described in the scriptures as a prophet. Jesus is considered a prophet. And to understand what a prophet is, it really finds its origins in the Old Testament, but a prophet was always someone who was a messenger for God, who was bringing good news, bringing direction, bringing guidance. They were bringing a word from God for people to hear. Jesus is making a statement here that is a prophetic word. Enter the narrow gate because it leads to life. Don't find yourself going through the wide gate that leads to destruction. So we're going to read this passage, chapter 7, verse 15 through 20. And I want you to see, can you pick out the phrase that we use in our culture all the time that finds its origins in Christ? If you would stand with me, if you can, this morning, if you are able, we're going to read together Matthew chapter 7. I'll read it for you, 15 through 20. As we read God's word together, here's what it says. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, because you missed it the first time. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So Jesus begins the passage that we're looking at today here in chapter 7 by giving a warning. And his warning is this, beware of false prophets. Again, what's a prophet? It's a messenger from God. Jesus is a prophet. But he says there are others who are false prophets, who are saying something contrary to what I have said. So he gives this Greek word that's very important as he says, uh, give, uh, beware. It's the word prosecco. Now, it's maybe not the one you're thinking of. It's a different word. It's the Greek word prosecco. And it literally means be aware or to give full attention to. To give full attention to. 
Jesus is saying, everyone listen up. Be aware. There are false prophets. And they masquerade in ways that you would not even imagine. Jesus is warning his listeners about people who claim to have a message from God, to have insight from God, but preach a gospel that is contrary to the one that Jesus brought through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, in verse 13 and 14, these two gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate, one leads to life and one leads to destruction. Jesus is very intent on letting everyone know, if you follow the false prophet, you will go to a gate you are not intended to go to. But if you listen to me, you will find this narrow gate, and it will lead to life. So did you hear the phrase that shows up within our culture that was read in chapter 7? Wolf in sheep's clothing. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus said it before we ever did. And when we say in our culture, this person's a wolf in sheep's clothing, what we mean is this. We are describing someone who is playing a role that is contrary to their real character. They're presenting in one kind of way, but it's not exactly who they are. So Jesus would say, listen, they may smell like a sheep, act like a sheep, but they are not a sheep. They are a wolf. So to really get the picture of what Jesus is talking about here, I think we have to understand what a wolf would be, what Jesus is trying to describe. I want to show you a picture of a wolf here on the screen. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know what kind of wolf this is. Red wolf, gray wolf, I I have no idea. It's a wolf I don't want to encounter, I know that especially from the picture. They look terrifying. The wolf that Jesus is talking about is probably more than likely an Arabian wolf or potentially some scholars even believe a jackal that Jesus is describing. But either way, to understand what Jesus is trying to say, this is the kind of picture that comes to mind. To give you a little context, I just want to talk about what a gray wolf is like first. So a gray wolf, I don't know if you knew this, can be up to six and a half feet long, three and a half feet tall, They can weigh up to 120 pounds, and they can run at speeds over 40 miles an hour. Suffice it to say, that is not an animal that I want to encounter, let alone the fact that they have sharp teeth, massive paws, massive claws. They're a formidable predator. They are an apex killer in much of the world. It's not something that you want to encounter. And so Jesus chooses to use this particular metaphor to show the kind of danger that is associated with false prophets who pose as followers of Christ, but who actually on the inside live a different kind of life and have a different reason for being there. And Jesus is saying, I want you to experience the full life, not destruction. Don't be deceived. But there's a reason to pay such attention that Jesus draws us to. Beware. Have full attention, prosecco, be fully attentive to. And the reason is this. When these wolves show up, they don't show up looking like a wolf. Because if a wolf were to come into a flock of sheep with a shepherd in the midst, what would happen right away? That's a wolf, we're leaving. The hunt would be over, the game would be off, but instead this wolf shows up looking like a sheep. You see, one of the most difficult lessons that I have learned as a pastor as someone who has loved this flock and served this flock for 16 years, is that there are some folks who have expressed intentions, but then have true intentions that are far different. There's a difference between sometimes what we express as our intention and then what we, what we truly have intended in our hearts. There are some who masquerade as sheep within the fold. Presenting as if we're just here to graze, grow, and serve, but underneath there's an interest in stirring up trouble. So Jesus warns his listeners, be aware, give full attention to the other sheep that are within the fold. 
So after years of ministry, I have experienced the harsh realities of a wolf being in the fold. There have been individuals who have been a part of this church and other churches who are looking for vulnerable people to take advantage of in the guise of just wanting to serve. There have been individuals who have spread teachings within the church that are contrary to biblical truth. There have been individuals who have stepped into leadership as a way of personal gain. There have been people who have simply wanted to stir up trouble and disunity. There have been folks who have looked for spiritual platforms, seeking power, refusing to listen, not liking to be questioned. And there have been times where we've been aware of this, but there are other times where we've missed it. We've had the wool pulled over our eyes. There are folks who I know in my sphere of influence and friendship who have bailed on their faith completely simply because they have encountered a wolf in sheep's clothing. Someone who had a certain expressed intention, but underneath had a different intention altogether. This is the reason that Jesus tells his listeners, be aware. Because a single wolf can decimate a flock of sheep. And the problem is most wolves don't run alone. They come in packs. So in this scripture, I was led to another passage of scripture that has haunted me all week. And I'm going to be very honest with you this morning. I did not want to preach this message. Nothing in me was excited about coming up and talking about this. I could think of 400 other sermons that I would rather preach. But honestly, after reading this particular passage in John chapter chapter 10, God convicted me in my heart about the importance of what Jesus says here. Here's what it says in John chapter 10, verse 7 through 13. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the what? Gate. I am the gate, Jesus says, for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be what? saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, verse 10, my favorite verses. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have life to the full. I am the good shepherd, but listen to this. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not, know, does not own the sheep. So when, the, when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf scatters the flock. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. When I read this passage this week, I was convicted on many levels. And one of them is just simply this. After 16 years of serving at this church, whether in student ministry and now uh, alongside of adults in this church, um, I have had the honor of being a shepherd for Mount Horeb. If you're a small group leader in this room, if you lead our students and lead our kids in some kind of way this morning, you are a shepherd. What this passage says, there's a different response from someone who's a hired hand and someone who sees themselves as a shepherd when a wolf shows up. One runs. It's self-preservation. But the other one defends the sheep. And I just want to confess this morning, there have been times where I've experienced a situation where clearly there's a wolf in our midst and I've wanted to run. It's easier. But as a shepherd, that's not something we can do. As Jesus says, a shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what we're called to. So Jesus says, beware. Jesus says, I am the gate. He is the way of salvation. The evil one comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you see the two gates, the two roads, the two options that we have here? This is convicting to me. And as folks who are part of this church, it should be convicting for us. That we live in a world, especially today, 
where it is difficult to navigate. We've gone through some of those most difficult seasons over the past year and a half that have divided us, distorted everything, caused disillusionment. It's been a difficult road. But for those of us who are called to be shepherds, we are called to take care of the sheep. 16th century theologian John Calvin said it this way. John Wesley will forgive me just for this one quote. He said this, The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. Two voices. One that gathers and comforts the sheep and one that protects from wolves and thieves. I don't want to run anymore when a wolf is on the prowl. I want to be a shepherd. We can be shepherds to take care of the flock. And the good news is this. In this passage, Jesus gives us everything we need to be able to spot a wolf, to know when there's one in our midst. gives clear indication. The first way is this. Jesus says, there are a wolf in sheep's clothing. Pay close attention to their fruit. The fruit will give them away every single time. Now, within the scriptures, fruit is a common way of talking about the way we live our lives, the things that we say, our actions. It's, it's what's produced from our life. It's an indication of what our true identity is. No matter what we present, our, our fruit will give us away. So Jesus says this, you don't find grapes and thorn bushes, right? You don't find figs and thistle plants. It would be inconsistent with the character of that particular plant. So the fruit will give them away. So Jesus says, beware. Pay attention to what is said, what is done, how people are treated, how they're valued, what people value, how they make you feel, what kind of environment they create, what kind of love of power. This is a very clear indication of whether you are dealing with a sheep or you're dealing with a wolf. Check the fruit. One of my best friends in this area, I've known her since fourth grade. Her name is Megan Sanders, and she'll hate that I mentioned her name. But she was on staff here for many years. We worked together, and I loved working with Megan. She's a good friend of mine still. And um, when we were younger, our younger days on staff as interns, one day she was in charge of confirmation, and she was teaching our eighth grade students in confirmation. And I was sitting in the room, and I remember she, she brought this concept up, and she said something that really offended me, made me really angry. She was teaching these eighth grade kids, and she said to them, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, then your life should be producing the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things should be produced within your life. And then she said, and if, if your life is not producing these, you should ask the question, why? I was like, whoa, these are eighth grade kids, Megan. You're coming on real strong here. But then I realized something. She is exactly Right? If we are followers of Jesus, the Spirit lives and dwells inside of us, we should be producing fruit that is in line with the character of Christ. Do you hear me? Love, joy, peace, patience, all of these things should be a part of our life. If they are not, that is a problem. And Jesus says, this is the way you'll know if you're dealing with a sheep or you're dealing with a wolf. Check out their fruit. What's being produced from their life. You see, a wolf does not produce joy, love, kindness, peace, patience, and so on. Instead, what you will see from a wolf is more closely resembling things like pride, anger, indifference, manipulation, shame, guilt, fear, greed. This fruit will give them away every single time. 
Jesus says, pay, pay close attention to the fruit. Secondly, I think what Jesus teaches us in this Matthew 7 passage is this, that we have to be so acquainted with the real that we can spot a counterfeit like that. So acquainted with what is real that we will know when something is fake right away. I grew up in Indiana. Some of y'all know I grew up on a, a farm. And so my family, for 11 years of my growing up time, owned a strawberry patch. And so literally I've given hours, days, weeks, months of my life to being in a strawberry patch. Every morning in the summertime, I would be out in the field picking strawberries to sell. I would, every night, I'd be out in the fields picking strawberries. My, my cousins, all of us around, it was, like, it was our job every single summer to pick strawberries, pick strawberries. I got so sick and tired of strawberries. But after 11 years, I know what a good strawberry looks like. I grew up having good strawberry pie, strawberry with a little sugar on top, strawberry jam, you name it. I knew what a good strawberry, I knew when I picked one from the plant, this one's fresh, this one's juicy, this one is perfect. Years later, I went to Dairy Queen and I bought a sundae for the first time with strawberries on it. I don't hate, I love Dairy Queen, but have you ever been to Dairy Queen and gotten strawberries on your sundae? Those are not strawberries. <laughs> I don't know what they are. They, they don't resemble the same color of a strawberry. They don't have the same texture. They're very slimy. There's something about it that I'm not trying to be offensive, but I'm not going to eat that. Because it looks nothing like what I know as good fruit. It's rotten. It's something completely different. When we become so acquainted with what is real, what the Spirit produces within us, then really quickly we will know a counterfeit when we see it. In really practical terms, here's what I think this means. We should be surrounding ourselves with the kind of people who really, truly love God, who really, truly love us, the kinds of people who say the hard thing to us, the kinds of people who encourage us without being asked, the kinds of people who want what's best for us, the kinds of people who don't do it right all the time but are trying to grow. When we surround ourselves with these kinds of people, real people producing real good fruit, then when we come across someone who's not producing that, we know it right now. As far as someone who has served in our student ministries for such a long time and who now have, have children that I'm wrestling with the same kind of stuff, I want my kids, I want our students to be able to recognize and influence a person in their life that's a wolf like that. And the only way it happens, we have to know what the opposite looks like. Folks, we, we have to be reading the Bible not, not being told what the Bible says, but you reading the Bible every single day so that when someone says something that is contrary to the gospel, contrary to the scriptures, you can say, absolutely not. I know what the Bible says. I can spot a counterfeit like that. That's a lie. So when someone comes to you and says to you, listen, you are too far gone. God could never love you. You're like, nope. I know what the Bible says about that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what's true. I'm not going to listen to that false gospel. And when someone comes to you and they say to you, listen, there are multiple ways to God. You can choose any one you want. You say, no, 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 that's not the Bible that I read. The Bible I read says this, Jesus is the what? Gate. He's the way, the truth, and the life. I know what's true, and that's counterfeit, and I know it right away. We should be so acquainted with what is real that we can spot something that is not. Very quickly. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 16. I want you to pay attention to the urgency that Paul has here that's so similar to the urgency that Jesus has in Matthew 7. Paul says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you've already learned. Keep away from them. 
For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Beware. Jesus says, pay attention to these things. Because there are wolves in sheep's clothing, folks who don't have our best interest in mind and the things of God in mind. We can't allow the wool to be pulled over our eyes. Instead, we must be aware. Number three, I think Jesus teaches us this. Trust the Holy Spirit inside of you. Trust the Holy Spirit inside of you. I want you to know something this morning. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian, then you have the Spirit of God living and dwelling inside of you. And the Spirit of God does certain things in us and through us and for us. First, the Spirit does this. It convicts us of sin. It shows us when we've gone wrong. It convicts us when we've stepped off the path. It convicts us when we've done something that is against the way of God. The Spirit counsels us and it guides us in the next steps of our life. The Spirit helps us understand God's word. We read it together. But not only that, the Spirit makes us sensitive to evil within the world. We can feel it, the nudges and the promptings of the Spirit when something is off, when something is not quite right. Years and years ago, I'd been in ministry here at Mount Hoare for not very long, and I received a phone call in my office. So I answered it, and the person on the phone said, hey, listen, I just want to call because I'm, I'm kind of I'm concerned about you and for you, and I'm concerned about kind of your spiritual state and some of these things, and I didn't talk much. I just kind of listened on the phone because it kind of went on for a while, this, this person's concern for me that they were voicing. And I began to sense like really quickly in this conversation that what this person was saying and what they were trying to uh, do over me in terms of control, they were two different things. And so very quickly I began to realize my, my spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of me was saying to me, like, this is not something worth listening to. Th- this is only going to take you further away from where I'm wanting you to go. This is not helpful. This is not love. This is something different. And the Spirit prompted my spirit to recognize that. And so I didn't listen. This was not something that was helpful for me. It it was actually harmful for me. Please hear me. I've had plenty of phone calls. I've had plenty of contact from folks in the congregation that I've listened to, that I've grown from, that have made me better. And I welcome that. This was not one of those. And the Spirit showed me that. We have to be sensitive to the spirit of God within our hearts to be able to recognize when there's something in our midst that is not quite right. Here's how 1 John says it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false what? Prophets. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. The writer says, Be careful. Pay attention to every spirit. Test every single one to make sure that it is, in fact, from God. When you hear a sermon on a Sunday morning, this sermon on Sunday morning, don't just take what is said as gospel. Wrestle with it yourself. Allow the Spirit of God to prompt you, to speak to you, because he will. Beware. Pay attention. And while we've talked about all this, I know it gets really easy sometimes for some of these phrases that we've used, and particularly this one, to to look out and say, there's wolves in our midst. You know, who's the wolf in the flock? And easy to point fingers. But the problem is, I believe all of us, at some point in time or another, we have a little bit of a wolf in us, some wolf tendencies. So though it's easy to, to look around and point at others, it is very important, I believe, that we also take account of ourselves. 
that we look in the mirror and pay attention. There's some questions I think that are very helpful for me. The first one is this. What are my motives? What are my motives? What am I seeking out of what I'm doing right now? As I lead this small group, as I serve in this way, as I preach on a Sunday morning, what are the motives that I have in serving the body of Christ? Is it, is it for personal gain or is it for the kingdom? Am I looking for status, for power, or am I looking to serve? What are the motives that I have within my life? Secondly, how do I handle rebuke? How do I handle correction? As someone who's been on staff here for 16 years, there have been many, many times I have been corrected and rebuked. And sometimes I've responded really well. A lot of times I have not responded as I should. It's something God has taught me to be able to take that criticism, not even criticism, that, that correction in a way as, as it's something good. You guys may not know this, but on, on a Tuesday, every Tuesday of the week, we come together as a sermon prep team. There's about eight or nine of us on that team, most of the preachers that you see alongside of others, who come together and we talk about the messages from the weekend before and the two weeks coming. And when we talk about these messages, there are times where we'll come together and say, I think you missed it. I think you didn't say exactly what the passage was really trying to say. Or we might say, hey, two weeks out, consider going this direction. I, th- I think that's the truest way to, to communicate this to the congregation, to the flock. Be careful with this particular passage. Be careful with this particular thing. I wish they would have warned me about this message two weeks ago, but they didn't. But when we come together on a Tuesday, it's a chance for correction. And God has shown me and grown me to welcome that in my life. It's important for us to all be open to that to grow, to learn from people around us? How do I respond to rebuke? Third, does the Bible guide my life? What is the guide? What is the authority for my life? What do I go to to determine what is right and what is wrong? What do I go to to determine how to live my life, how to treat people, how to live like Jesus? Is it the Bible or is it something else? Is the Bible the guide for my life? Lastly, I just have one question kind of in terms of all of this, and it's very simple, but I think it's really profound. Can a wolf become a sheep? I mean, is it possible for a wolf to become a sheep? The simple answer is this. I think it's a resounding yes. That's the point of the gospel, that transformation is possible, that we can be renewed that our fruit can change, that our intentions can change, that we can love the church and not harm the church, that we can take care of people and not look out for ourselves first. That is the truth. A wolf can become a sheep, but it takes two very important things, repentance and obedience. Repentance and obedience. The funny thing is, it's the exact same instruction, the exact same recipe for whether you are a sheep or you are a wolf. Repentance and obedience. But not only can a sheep, a wolf become a sheep, but I believe also a sheep can become a wolf if we're not careful. We can find ourselves becoming someone who harms what God is doing in our midst. Here's what 2 Timothy says, chapter 2. It says, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of what? The truth. And they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. 
It's the good news of the gospel. In fact, it's the very reason that Jesus came. He came for the sheep and the wolves. So that we, through repentance and obedience, might come in line, see him as the good shepherd, know his voice, and follow him wherever he goes. So this morning, would you join me as we pray together? Jesus, I want to thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've extended to me, that you've extended to every single person in this room. God, we are honored. I feel humbled to be a part of what you're doing here at this church and in this community. I feel honored and humbled, God, to be a shepherd of this flock and for many in this room to be shepherds alongside me. I pray, God, you would help us to take this warning to heart, to be aware, to be attentive to, to pay attention to fruit, and to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we long to lead and live together in love with you, Jesus. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us, God, to be renewed, to produce better fruit, to live with better intention, and to love people well. And it's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.